Submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 94-395, United States against Lori Williams. Mr. Jones. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, a person whose property has become entangled in government efforts to collect taxes owed by someone else has a broad variety of remedies. The non-taxpayer may challenge the government at collection action in a wrongful levy, a quiet title, or a foreclosure proceeding and may obtain a release of the federal lien if they want to make an immediate sale by providing substitute collateral from the proceeds of the sale. Historically, however, non-taxpayers have not been permitted simply to pay the tax and sue for a refund. The collateral litigation of tax obligations by non-taxpayers would present a quagmire of problems that the courts and Congress have not traditionally sanctioned. In this case, however, the Ninth Circuit held that a non-taxpayer whose property became subject to a lien that arose from someone else's obligations may simply pay the tax, even though she admittedly didn't owe it, and sue for a refund. Mr. Jones, do you concede that, that the lien was improper because at the time notice of it was given, the person who allegedly had incurred the tax liability was not the owner of the property? No, Justice Ginsburg, we don't concede that. Indeed, the, the facts reflect that the lien would have been valid as against the non-taxpayer because she took the property from her husband without qualifying as a purchaser. She took the property from her husband without paying what the statute requires, full and adequate consideration in money or money's worth. I thought that was conceded or uh, that was the premise of the uh, decision below, was it not? Not, not, act, not quite. The, it, the, it, neither the court... It's just a matter of chronology. Is it yes. not so that the notice of lien was filed some weeks after the property was transferred? After the transfer, and, the, and, and our point with respect to that is that the notice of lien is not needed to be valid as against a person who took the property without qualifying as a purchaser under 6323 of the code. The but you respondent say you don't have to case, litigate that issue. That, that issue hasn't been reached by either of the courts below because this issue, the case has been decided solely on jurisdictional grounds. The Court of Appeal, the District Court found no jurisdiction because she wasn't a taxpayer and couldn't sue under the statute. The Court of Appeals found jurisdiction and ordered the case remanded for consideration of the merits of our lien. Um, we brought the case to this Court solely on the jurisdictional issue. If the Court thinks there's no jurisdiction, that's the end of the case. If the Court thinks there is jurisdiction, it should be remanded for that type of issue that you've just described to be discussed. Mr. Jones, uh, 1346 confers jurisdiction on the district courts. Yes. In this, but uh, traditionally, uh, in cases like Testan, we've said that uh, simply conferring jurisdiction is not enough. There must be a grant of some sort of cause of action right. to, to waive sovereignty. Where, where do we find that? Um, the short answer to that question is that the waiver of immunity for a claim that would fall within 1346A1 is in Section 7422F of the Internal Revenue Code. But that appears just to be a statute of limitations. No, sir. 7422F F. Is, a, is a statute that says that a claim of the type per, permitted by 7422A, this is very complicated. I, 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 I just want to say that at the outset. 
7422F says that a claim of the type permitted by 7422A must be brought against the United States rather than against the district director, who used to be the collector. If you will recall, at common law, these tax refund suits were, could not be brought against the United States. They were brought against the That's what made Mr. Halvering famous. I believe that's correct. Uh, I would like to cite the Halvering case used to be an easy answer to a tax question. Um, but let me, let me focus, if I may, on exactly the rationale of the, of the court below and why we think it's wrong. The court said that the simple language of 1346A1 says that a suit may be brought against the United States for the recovery of any tax illegally or erroneously assessed or collected. The court said the plain language says that if, if you're alleging that the tax was illegally assessed or erroneously collected, you can proceed. The central premise of that analysis is that it is appropriate to view 1346A1 in complete isolation from any other provision of the Code. And this Court has twice rejected that very contention. In the Flora case, and again most recently in the United States versus Dom. Mr. Jones, would you go back in time with me before there were those later provisions? As I understand it, 1346A has been with us since, what, 1911? 1921. And the other provisions? The provision that this Court held in Dom modifies 1346A1 is 7422A of the Internal Revenue Code. 7422A of the Internal Revenue Code was enacted in 1878. Its language was the model from which 1346A1 was drawn when jurisdiction was first provided for suits against the United States. Before jurisdiction was provided for suits against the United States for tax refunds, 7422A of the Code had already been in existence for almost 50 years. The the language of 1346A and 7422 are matching, and neither of those use the word taxpayer. No. So the critical statute you're relying on is not either one of those. It it is, in fact, 7422A. 7422A says that any claim for refund must first be filed with the Secretary of the Treasury before it may be maintained in any court. In Dahm, the Court concluded that's a jurisdictional limit. That's an express limit on the jurisdiction that coexists with 1346. You have to read these together. And the Court further said in Dahm that to decide what that meant, you have to file the claim for refund with the Secretary of the Treasury, you have to go to 6511 of the Code. 6511 of the Code requires that the administrative refund claim be filed by the taxpayer. What year did that come in? I can't say. It was after 1346A. Uh, I doubt that, but I can't say. Uh, the requirement of an administrative refund claim has existed since 1870. Not the requirement of an administrative refund claim, but the time limit that refers to the taxpayer. The language in 7422 of the Code and 1346 Mesh is the same, and they don't refer to any taxpayer. That's absolutely right. But the 74, our point is that 7422A requires that there be a refund claim filed in accordance with law, not just a refund claim, a refund claim filed with the Secretary in accordance with law. And I'm making the same point that the Court made in deciding the Dahm case, that you have to then go to 6511 to see what that means. But I don't think 6511 provides what you say it provides, because 6511, it seems to me, doesn't provide anything more than the fact that a claim for credit um, uh, or refund of a tax uh, with respect to which the taxpayer is required to file a return shall be filed by the taxpayer within certain periods. It doesn't seem to address the question of a refund which is claimed by someone who was not required to file a return as a taxpayer in the first place. Actually, I believe that that the language of 6511 would apply whether whether or not a return is required to be filed. The taxpayer is required to file the administrative refund claim within three years, I believe, of payment. No, I've got that back. It applies whether or not a return was filed, but isn't it conditioned uh, upon the requirement uh, of filing by the taxpayer when the taxpayer is the claimant. 
Isn't, I mean, isn't that what the text says? A what? claim for credit or refund of an overpayment of any tax imposed by this title, in respect of which tax the taxpayer is required to file a return, shall be filed by the taxpayer within certain periods. There seems to be a condition that limits the application of this uh, to refunds by a taxpayer who was required to file a return, and it doesn't seem to, to, to speak to the situation we've got here. I'm sorry. I don't believe that's correct, because if you read on at page 3 of our brief, we quote this provision. Yeah. Uh, and the last clause of that sentence that you were reading from says, or if no return was filed by the taxpayer. If no return was filed by the taxpayer. But and that, here her claim is, I am not a taxpayer within the meaning of the statute because I was never required to file a return as to the taxes you were ultimately collecting. Well, she can't qualify as a taxpayer under the code. However, you parse the last clause, and, and I, I just respectfully disagree as, in terms of how, how that language parses. The way it has always been understood, and when I say always except for the Martin case and, and this case, is that a taxpayer must make the administrative refund claim, uh, and that only — and, and the term taxpayer is defined in Section 7701 of the Code to mean the person subject to the tax. It is Mr. A, Mr. Jones, I'm always understood. Um, that's hardly universal. There, There is — one well widely used um, Burnett and Kafka litigation of federal tax controversies that states, this is from the, from the 1986 uh, issue, that, that, that a third party who pays the taxes of another under duress may recover the amount paid even if the taxpayer owes the deficiency and in determining whether a payment has been made under duress the courts have examined the coercive circumstances that prompted the payment and the lack of alternatives available to the payor. That's a widely used manual. It's certainly not authoritative because it doesn't come from the government. But how can you say it was generally understood that in light of a statement like this? I, I, I would respectfully disagree with that treatise's description of the law. You may very well disagree with it, but you can't say until this case it was generally understood that. I, I think you can I, say it was debatable. Well, whether it was debatable or not, the way we understand the cases is as follows. Every case that has actually addressed the question of whether a non-taxpayer may bring a refund suit has said no. There are two lines of authority that follow along that same principle. One line of authority is the Parsons versus Anglin type case, where the person who paid the tax did so under what the court said was a reasonable assumption or a reasonable belief that the government was taking the position she was the taxpayer. Obviously, a person can come in the court and say, well, I paid the tax but because, because you claimed it was due for me, but I don't think I owe it. I'm not really the taxpayer. I don't owe this tax. That's one line of authority. The other line of authority are the kinds of cases like Stewart versus Chinese Chamber of Commerce, which is cited in the Phillips decision in the Second Circuit. And in that case, the court says a non-taxpayer cannot bring a refund suit, but what they can do, and this may relate to the point that you just raised, Justice Ginsburg, what they can do is that before 1966, they could sue the collector, the district director, to recover property that the district director had taken to pay someone else's taxes. Now, as in the First National Bank of Emlington case, which we cite in our brief simply as the First National Bank case, it's a Third Circuit case, the Court explains the limit on that branch, if you will, of, of authority to recover property, and that is that once the government has sold the property and the money have been deposited in the government's treasury, that avenue of jurisdiction doesn't exist because then it would be a suit against the United States for a refund. So. I don't have the treatise that's in front of you. It wasn't briefed, and I'm not, I'm not able at this moment to adequately. I just brought it up because of your statement that until this case it was generally understood, and I think it's I think not that generally it's, understood. I, I, I think that it, I would go so far as to say I, I submit that it is perfectly accurate to say that other than the two lines of decisions that I just described, every court that has addressed this subject has said, other than Martin and, and the current decision, has said that the a non-taxpayer may not sue for a refund. And what, what, what has been the basis of those courts' position? 
There, there have been a variety of bases. The, in, in the Federal court, court of Claims in the economy, plumbing, and heating case applied the reasoning that I've described, which is — and the, the Court's reasoning in Dahlm, which is you have to read these statutes together. As the, this, this Court said in, in Flora, in making the very point that you could not read 1346A1 in isolation, and, I, and I'll quote the Court, we are not here concerned with a single sentence in an isolated statute, but with a jurisdictional provision which is a keystone of a carefully articulated and quite complicated structure of tax laws. Okay, but where in that complicated structure do they derive the principle that a non-taxpayer can't sue? I'll track the reasoning. 1346A1 permits jurisdiction for suits challenging taxes. Let's abbreviate it that way. 7422 says that in such a suit, you can't — 7422A? Of of the Internal Revenue Code, yes. Yeah. Says that in such a suit may not be maintained until the — until a claim has first been filed with the Secretary of Treasury in accordance with law. So far, we have no limitation to taxpayers, either in 1346 or in 7422. And like in Dahlm, we go on to 6511, and 6511 says that this is a claim that has to be filed before uh, you can proceed with a case under 1346. But again, the statute doesn't limit that to tax. Yes, it does. In 6511A, it says that the claim shall be filed by the taxpayer within a period of years from the time of the payment of the tax or the filing of the return, or if there was no return. the statute of limitation section. Yes. Now, uh, did this taxpayer uh, file an administrative claim for refund first? I thought she did. She filed an administrative claim for refund, but she is not the person who is the taxpayer. But she was, in effect, compelled by the government to do something because the lien had been slapped on the house and she was trying to sell it, and there, there is a degree of government compulsion. It's not like There's a the volunteer of- that you've been concerned about in your brief. Congress. Someone who, who had a lot of pressure put on her to dispose of this thing. The statutory structure that I've described wasn't the result of historical happenstance. Congress has long been aware that non-taxpayers can't sue a re- for a refund under these provisions. And instead of providing jurisdiction for non-taxpayers to sue for a refund, they provided a wholly separate set of remedies directly addressed to the problems that non-taxpayers face. Two of those remedies are particularly relevant to this case. Section 7426, well, let me start with the second one because it more directly addresses your concern. In Section 6325 of the Code, Congress provided that a person like respondent whose property is subject to a lien arising from someone else's taxes doesn't have to pay the tax to remove the lien. All right, except that's a discretionary thing with the IRS. And here she's got an escrow that's going to close in a week. And is there any indication in the world that the, the IRS would have given her this? They didn't come to her and say, look, you can do this and, and we'll, we'll offer to well, let you put it in escrow. They didn't tell her that. Might I first state there's absolutely nothing in the record one way or the other about the conversations that did or did not occur between the service and the respondent on this subject. Well, do you, and I would you tell us whether in general it is the practice of the government to notify people in this situation who don't owe the tax but whose property is going to going to be subject to a foreclosure sale if they can't sell it. Is it just like the Social Security office gives people's notice of the death benefits that they're entitled to? Does the IRS advise people in these situations? Well, let, let me let me divide your question from the foreclosure situation to, to this sale situation. The foreclosure situation is when a suit is brought and everyone's going to know then that the validity of the liens is going to be adjudicated in that fashion. The problem that Justice O'Connor was addressing was, well, what if someone wants to make a sale of their property? I don't know how to answer that question any better than to say that Congress anticipated that concern and made an express provision for it. But my question to you is, if she's trying to avoid she wants to sell the property, so she'll avoid a foreclosure. This statute that you tells, tell us fits our situation. I asked if the IRS has a practice of telling taxpayers that's their remedy. 
it's certainly phrased in highly discretionary terms. There's nothing that requires the government. It says the government may do this if it wants to. Well, it doesn't quite say, well, I mean, you could understand it to, to mean that, but what it says is that the, the, he may in his discretion enter into, this commissioner may in her discretion enter into these. And you think of a more discretionary way of saying in the, in the, dire- think, in the director's discretion? I, I, the district director may in his discretion? I don't think that anyone doubts that the, sec- that the commissioner will exercise her discretion to enter into these agreements. The discretionary aspect of it is what exactly the agreement needs to contain. Is that based is, on your knowledge of what's done in the field, the district directors yes. regularly exercise their discretion to make these agreements? Well, there's nothing on that in this record. I want to be frank about that. And the point is, isn't it, that uh, you don't really care. Under your reading the statute, they can act with total arbitrariness, and there's still no remedy. No, sir, I wouldn't say that. I mean, well, there's no refund remedy. That's right. No, 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 Section 3225B3 doesn't help if the the government acts with total arbitrariness. I would say that, that it does, because if someone, if the commissioner arbitrarily abused her discretion in refusing to provide a substitute collateral agreement, I suppose that that would help, that there would be some and basis. And would have been jurisdiction in this case? Well, not it wouldn't be in this case, uh, well, Justice Stevens, because in this case she sued for a refund. She didn't follow that path. And so what would or wouldn't have happened if she followed that path is something we don't know. Yeah, but the statute does not read that, that, uh, that the commissioner uh, shall, unless there is uh, in her uh, judgment reason not to do so, uh, enter into such an agreement. It doesn't say that. It just says she may if she wishes. I, I well, it says it may, she may in her discretion. And, and what, how a court would decide whether discretion had been abused in a particular situation is, frankly, a little bit far removed from the question I we asked. That's the point. <laughs> which is whether there's jurisdiction for a refund suit for a person who didn't do that. And it's, the, not, it's not that it's far removed. It's, it's in, at least in my mind, it seems that a, a woman pays the tax her husband owes, and she has to do it because she can't sell the property otherwise, in my imaginary case. Now, if that tax was unlawfully assessed, there should be some way she could be able to get the money back. And one way to get the money back is she brings a refund suit. That would work. Well, and you tell us, no, there's this other way. But the trouble with the other way is it gives the discretionary power to the district, and they write that right in the regs. This is discretionary. So that's a problem with the other way. Now, what happens bad to the law if we try the first way? That is, suppose we read the word refund suit to apply to this situation, and you say, yeah, they have to file a claim, but nothing in 65 Nothing in, nothing in 6511A says that the husband or the wife of the taxpayer couldn't do it. That's a statute of limitations provision. So what would bad happen to the law if you read the refund thing the way your opponents want it? It's, that's, that's, to us, that's a very important question because we think that this result, deviating from the language of the statutes and the cases, would produce incredibly bad results. It's difficult to describe them with precision, precisely because there is not a track record of cases allowing tax refund suits, collateral challenges to taxes by persons who aren't taxpayers. We just said the person who paid the money can file to get her money back. You would be permitting a collateral litigation of someone else's tax liability by the person who wasn't. Oh no, no, no! She's, she's not seeking to contest the, whether the husband owes the tax. She's te- seeking to contest only the propriety of the lien on that property. If you look at page six, footnote three of respondent's brief, you'll see that they do contest the underlying assessments. They have done so in the district court at page Well, let's, eight. Assume, let's assume that the only issue that she's bringing up is her issue, not his issue. Could she, let's just say, she wants to ask for more, maybe she's not entitled to it. But if all she wants to contest is the propriety of putting the lien on her property, nothing more, why can't she use 1346, the refund 1722, I understand your point. There isn't any easy way to differentiate to reach that result. 
you can't very well say that the non-taxpayer can challenge an erroneous collection but can't challenge an unlawful assessment if you read the statute on its — without reading anything else. And I don't know what else you'd be reading to import that requirement into 1346A1. Why not Take the simple — the simple point that the wrong that was done to her was that a lien was put on her property? Well, it, it wasn't — that's a question that hasn't been resolved. I mean, we're, yeah, we're looking her, forward. That's her controversy with the government. Her, her husband has a — her ex-husband has a different controversy. She wants to litigate her controversy. The problem I, — I, I take it we accept as taken that there's an enormous problem from allowing the collateral litigation of the uh, liability itself. And so well, I don't move accept on. that. I don't see why it's so much more horrible. She's got two reasons for getting the money back. Right. One, that she was put upon, and two, that the tax wasn't owed in the first place. Why is that so horrible? Okay. We don't know how collateral estoppel and res judicata would apply then. Would, would, would we have to bring suits against — would we have to win our tax cases two or three times? Clever practitioners, of whom there is many, would be able to identify a host of issues here. Let me explain one simple one. It's just an example. The statute of limitations. What statute of limitations would apply to a refund suit by a non-taxpayer? Section 6532. How about the precedent of this court set in Lamp? You look in the same statute for the closest analogy. Here we got a wonderful statute we can look at, 6511. 6532 is the statute of limitations for a refund suit. It, 6511 is for the refund claim. 6532 is, for a, is divided into two parts. The first part is suits for refund by taxpayers, and it provides for a suit may be brought within two years from the time notice of disallowance of the claim is given to the taxpayer. Section, the other half of 6532 is entitled Suits by, for Refund by Persons Other Than Taxpayers, and it gives a nine-month statute of limitation for suits for a wrongful levy by persons other than taxpayers. There is no clear answer to which there's of no wrongful There's no wrongful levy here, and they never got to the point of making a <coughs> levy. They just put a notice. Yes. They notified of yes. the, the lien. One of the uh, other no statutes that you haven't mentioned, and I wonder if you can... Tell us how that plays into it. You said that there's, is there a basis for a claim? 6402 provides, gives authority to make uh, a refund. Yes. And it doesn't use the word taxpayer. That's correct. So it, well, it has a claim for a refund, and then here's a substantive provision that says the government can give somebody a refund for an but overpayment. To the person who made the overpayment. Right, and there was no overpayment in this case. I mean, they over, there would only be, but, but beyond that, even if there was a claim of an overpayment, it, could, it would only be maintained in court under 1346 if it had been first filed as an administrative claim by the taxpayer. The taxpayer is defined to mean the person subject to the tax. You cannot... But you Allow can pull that from 6511 and then the definition of taxpayer. And, and from uh, uh, 80 years of cases addressing this subject that have reached the same conclusion and from the fact that Congress relied on that conclusion. You have a case like this one where uh, the, tax, the person who is making the claim says, this was my property. The government came in and slapped the lien on it. Yeah. I had nothing to do with this tax. But I need to sell the property. Do you have any case? Yes, you Bussie. keep saying, what is the closest case? Seventh Circuit decision in Bussey is just like this case. All right. There are other circuit cases going well, the other way. Not, not only consistent with the two lines of authority I described earlier. Well, if I made, you know, let, let me, uh, I want to ask you a question before your time expires. What, what about where the IRS simply mistakes the property that it has a right to lien? It says the, the lien is on lot two, and it's really on lot three. Uh, what remedy does the owner of lot two have? I, I, I didn't understand your hypothetical, and I think I may need to. Lot well, two is... Uh, lot, lot, lot two has no connection no with connection. the tax liability. The, the IRS simply makes a mistake in the legal right. description. They can bring it to the IRS's attention, and the IRS would remove the lien. Well, but uh, supposing you have a particularly uh, curmudgeon... Okay. The IRS. <laughs> then they can bring. Then they bring a quiet title action, or if that's, or if they're in a big hurry, they make a substitute collateral agreement. 
That's 65. That's, again, the discretionary thing. Well, it's discretionary in our view in the sense that Congress wants us to do it when, when we can work it out provisions that make sense in the facts of the case. Is I don't think answer, that anyone has suggested to, that we've abused is, our discretion. Mr. Jones, is your answer to the chief in the case of somebody who is no relation to the taxpayer at all, just a wrong lien on a wrong piece of property, that the only remedies are a quiet title suit by the time that gets over, the foreclosure has long since occurred, or this within his discretion, are those the only two remedies? No. What else? Well, uh, a foreclosure suit and a quiet title suit are wholly separate issues. Foreclosure is when we try I'm not talking about a foreclosure suit. I'm talking about somebody who wants to sell her property. They the bring a quiet the, title suit or they, or they make a substitute collateral agreement if they're in a hurry. And if the district director says, in my discretion, no, then what is that? Then they're, in, in the same kind of a problem they would have with any private creditor who has a lien. I mean, there's nothing unique about the government's position in this case. Right, we have if, a valid if I have lien. To read, to Pardon your me. mind, the sanctity of the following proposition, person A should not be able to litigate the liability of taxpayer B. That's, That's correct. That's sacred. That's sacrosanct. But that is, in my mind, not a tax expert. What do I read? What one thing can I read that will help me understand the sacredness of that principle? Flora and Dom. Flora. This Court's opinions in Flora and Dom. Right, fine. Thank you. Dom was not your proudest moment, I don't think. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Uh, Mr. Panett. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the government's argument in this case absolutely infuriates me. First of all, they mistake the record. Justice Ginsburg was correct in, in her statement with regard to the record, and I'll cite you to the specific parts of the record where the government conceded factual issues in this case. On page 24 of the Joint Appendix is a transcript from the District Court where the judge of the District Court asked both counsel is, are there, in this case, any triable issues of fact? Both counsels stipulated that there were not. The judge ultimately decided the case as there were no triable issues of fact and that the sole question in this case was jurisdiction. And that is in the petitioner's petition for cert, page 9A of their appendix. Well, that by itself do doesn't That's absolutely correct. Uh, tell us much of anything. Uh, as to what might have been triable issues of fact. But well, in our complaint, we alleged certain facts, and then in their answer, they denied these facts, and then the government, in their conclusions of law submitted to the court, which is in the joint appendix, page 11, their number 12, which specifically states there are no longer any genuine issues of triable fact, which to me means that whatever the issues were in the case, from the complaint to the answer, no longer exist. Did this go off on a motion for summary judgment? The judge recharacterized it from a motion for summary judgment to a trial on stipulated facts. And originally it was submitted as a motion for summary judgment, but he recharacterized it. He said there are no more facts to try here, so we're going to recharacterize it as a trial on stipulated facts and sole issue being jurisdiction. And so it was a trial on stipulated facts because the parties stipulated that there were no triable issues of fact? That's correct. That's quite remarkable. The government, in essence, is arguing that it doesn't matter because the government's argument is that she's not the taxpayer, that she has no jurisdiction to sue, so whether or not their collection was erroneous or not is really irrelevant, according to their argument. The government makes this convoluted argument about the statutory scheme. We are not arguing with the statutory scheme in this case. We agree that the Internal Revenue Code provisions are pertinent and do apply, as this Court ruled in Dom and also in Flora. However, the government blurs the statutory scheme in this case. Rather than looking at each independent statute and seeing what the purpose was, both as a matter of law and as a matter of tax policy, they instead blur them all together and say, this prevents the, the uh, petitioner in this case to sue, simply because 6511, which is a procedural statute of limitations, has the word taxpayer in it. Yet Section 7422, which is the cause of action section, does not have the word taxpayer in it, it requires that, as a matter of tax policy, that the petitioner file an administrative claim with the Internal Revenue Service, which he did, 
And as a matter of tax policy, there's justification for that. Why file an action in district court and incur additional litigation if you could just ask the IRS for your money back, and if they agree with you and they review that and they, and they realize they made an Are error? Are there any authorities indicating uh, that the IRS has processed and paid administrative claims that are filed by persons other than the taxpayer? No, there's nothing in the record to reflect that, and they probably, uh, and this is just my speculation, dismissed them as a matter of course. But we went through and, and went through the uh, process of filing they the administrative. Dismissed the claims. They, they dismissed the administrative claim for refund, and the reason they gave in this so case. So the position of the IRS has been consistent in that it, that it will only honor refund claims when filed by the taxpayer. That's their position. Yeah. But we complied with the statutory scheme by filing the administrative claim, which was then denied, and we then proceeded to district court. Well, Mr. Pence, uh, the, as I understand the government's reasoning, it's that uh, 7422 says that no suit shall be maintained until you made the re filed for a refund. And uh, 6511 says that uh, the claim for credit... Uh, on the, under the refund section, uh, must, shall be made by the taxpayer. Now, wh wh what is your answer to that? Well, the government's position with regard to 6511 makes that provision the Charles Atlas of all tax provisions, because it literally reaches across from title to title and injects taxpayer into Title 28. Well, but if, if, it, if it really is a keystone, I mean, if you have to do this in order to bring a suit for refund, and if to do it you have to be a taxpayer, perhaps that is its effect. But the actual language in 6511 is not limiting jurisdiction. It is solely a statute of limitations. Yeah, but 7422 says that, that must be complied with before you bring a suit for refund. No, actually, 70, the council misstated the, the uh, purpose of 7422. Section 7422 requires the administrative claim for refund to be filed with the Internal Revenue Service. That is governed not under 6511, but under 6532A, which says that the administrative claim for refund must be filed with the Internal Revenue Service and that the Internal Revenue Service has six months to review your claim. It's a it doesn't say by the taxpayer. It doesn't say by the taxpayer. So there's no limitation there. You know, over the years that I've been involved in this case, I've wondered why is the government taking such a harsh position in this case, such an inequitable position? And after reading their brief for four years, I'm still not all that sure why they're taking this position, but I think... Well, nobody ever claimed that tax laws were equitable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're fairly strict. They are fairly strict, but, but they should be fair. They should be fair as a matter of tax policy. I don't think when Congress enacts tax legislation that they're trying to be inequitable to people. Yeah, but, but they argue that it is fair. The, their argument is you didn't follow the right route. They said there's the sacred principle, person A should not be able to litigate the tax liability of B. So if your client is concerned with B's tax liability, that should not be up to her. If your client feels that they didn't assess the lien and do the procedural stuff properly, there is a perfectly good route. You go to the IRS, you make a deal with them, you sell the property, you pay the proceeds into the fund, and you conduct your argument vis-a-vis -vis the proceeds. Now, there's a flaw in that route. The flaw is the word may, which in the regs have turned into discretionary. But they say that flaw in practice is not important while the other flaw of accepting your argument is very important. Because if we accept your argument, A can litigate the underlying tax liability of B, and that violates the sacred principle. So where we all are is how sacred is, at least where I am, how sacred is this principle? What will happen to you, I'm expelling it out, because I sure. want you to, yeah, to reply to it. We're not arguing that she's going to go into court and litigate the liability of her ex-husband. But you, you asked for that. We're, I gather. No. But if we agree, we, 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 we mentioned in a footnote as an irony that not only did she not owe the taxes, but her ex-husband didn't owe the taxes either. But we're not saying that she was going to go into court and litigate his tax liability. That's his problem, not hers. But that doesn't matter, because even if you won't, the next person could. Their problem is once we take this route on the law, it's open to A's to litigate the tax liability of B's. No, I think this Court can limit its holding 
to simply whether or not the person that paid the taxes owed the taxes. Sure we could. I mean, we could make up a whole new revenue code. Where do you get that from the language? The language of the... The language of this thing either permits a suit or doesn't permit a suit. It doesn't say we're... Exactly. And the language of the jurisdictional statute focused on the language erroneous collection. Was there an erroneous collection as to Mrs. Williams? Yes, there was. She didn't owe the taxes. It doesn't say as to Mrs. Williams. It says erroneous collection. It could be erroneous because you moved against the wrong person. It could be erroneous because there's no... because the tax wasn't due. Any sum alleged to have been excessive or any manner wrongfully collected under the Internal Revenue Isn't it wrongfully collected if it wasn't owed? Yes, it is. Okay, so, so there you are. You're in the soup, and, and anybody, even though your client may not have wanted it, somebody else can come in and try to litigate whether the tax was, was actually owed by her husband. Let's say that she litigates and the district court rules that she didn't owe the taxes and the taxes were erroneously collected as to her. The government then proceeds against the ex-husband. Why shouldn't he have the right to go into court and litigate whether he owed the taxes or not? Of course he does. The question is whether she does as well. And I'd like to get a clear answer from you on what it is exactly that she can contest. You assert that she can contest the propriety of the lien on her property. You have a footnote that suggests that she, as well, can contest whether he ever owed the tax. And Justice Scalia pointed out that there's nothing in the statute, no language in the statute that would distinguish her contesting the lien on her property as distinguished from her contesting the amount of taxes her husband owes. I'm going to give you sort of an abstract analogy, but I'd like you to follow along just for a second. There's a bridge that spans from San Francisco to Oakland called the Oakland Bay Bridge. And in the middle is, it's actually two bridges, because there's a span that goes to Angel Island, and then there's a span that goes on to Oakland. The government has to prove in this case, number one, if they're going to say that Lori Raven Williams' property was liable for these taxes, they have to show why. They have to show that her ex-husband owed the taxes, number one, and that, number two, he still had some interest in this property, and then move that across the second span to her. Our argument is, in this, the facts in this particular case, the second span of that bridge, they can't cross that at all. And the first span of the bridge, they can only cross that for about 25 percent, because in the facts of this case, he didn't even owe 75 percent of the taxes. It's not clear to me. What is it that she wants to contest if she goes into the district court? You're saying that she is not going to contest the validity of the tax assessed against the husband? She's going to contest the validity of the tax lien that was placed on her property after she had been conveyed the property for adequate consideration, and under the Internal Revenue Code, that lien was in error. It was based on that lien that the government collected the taxes. Is the only way that she can challenge that by first paying the tax? By first paying? No. She had three alternatives. She could have filed an action for quiet title. She could have put the money in the trust fund if the government acquiesced in that. Would the quiet title have been adequate? Absolutely not. Under the facts of this case, because of the way the lien arose, she received the lien notice seven days. What you're saying is that she'd lose on the merits? No, she would not lose on the merits. The fact a lien is filed seven days before escrow is closed, that means that the quiet title action is not a viable alternative. It does not mean that in other facts it may be a viable alternative. The key focus, though, is that these remedies are not mutually exclusive. All right. So the quiet title is one. The trust is substitute property by putting the funds in escrow is another, but that's discretionary. Correct. Anything else? And she could file a claim for refund if she acquiesces in the payment of the taxes under duress. Although that's the issue. That is the issue here. Mr. Panitz? Yes. A moment ago you said that I believe 6532 could be relied on to file for filing the claim. You didn't have to rely on 6511 and that 6532 didn't mention the word taxpayer? 6532 does use the term taxpayer. 6532 is the statute that provides that the administrative claim filed with the Internal Revenue Service must be allowed to be considered for six months or Yes, but it refers to the claim by the taxpayer. I believe that's 6511, Your Honor. No, let me read you. 
the last three or four lines of 6532. It talks about two years from the date of mailing by certified red by the secretary to the taxpayer. So that your, your suggestion there's an alternate way of, of coming that you don't need to rely on 6511, which uses the term taxpayer. Your, your section that you rely on also uses the term taxpayer. Well, I'm not relying on that section for jurisdiction. Okay. I'm using it as a statute of limitations as well. Well, okay. What, what, what is it? that uh, uh, enables you to file a claim for refund, as Section 7422 does, that doesn't in require that the claim for refund be filed by the taxpayer. Well, the tell me what section. Sh sure. The, the, uh, you, can you give me a number? Well, for example, the definitional section, 7701A, as part of the preamble, specifically states, number one, the definition of taxpayer shall only be used in this title, which means it doesn't apply in the jurisdictional sections, Title 28. And it also states that it, the definitions in 7701 shall not be manifestly incompatible with the intent of the statutes. Well, so you, you say perhaps the word taxpayer should have a different definition than the person who paid the tax? Well, when the word is used in the statute of limitations... I mean, that doesn't seem terribly difficult to define taxpayer as the person who paid the tax. That's the generic sense that the word is, is used, unless it's defined that's differently client. as a term that's of your art. Client. Your that's client right. has paid the tax. It's that's the that. government that's trying to say taxpayer means only, exactly. only the individual who assertedly uh, owed the tax. And we make that point in our brief. That so you, paid the tax. Your, your, your client paid the tax? When the, when the word is used in the generic uh, sense... I asked you a question. Sure. Did your client pay the tax? Absolutely. Oh. Okay. The, the fear that I bring up that the government has... Yes. You, you do concede that you can't just volunteer to pay somebody else's tax and then go litigate it. There, there's a distinction between volunteering to pay somebody else's tax and being in a position where you're coerced or persuaded to pay another person's tax. There is a distinction. The distinction, though, is that in the coerced or persuaded situation, there's no possibility of the tax evasion or the floodgates argument that the government is arguing in this case. Because it's the government that initiated the collection action. Where's the scheme there? The government started the ball rolling. In the pure, true volunteer situation, let's say a father pays the taxes of his son to help him out for altruistic reasons, and a year later discovers that the taxes were paid in error because, for example, there was something wrong on the son's return. Why should not that father be allowed to proceed to court and prove that there was an error in collection here? Now, the government contends, well, there's possibilities of evasion here. There's possibilities that there'll be a, a, a slew of litigation on refund suits. I'd like to take a moment. You're, you're not limiting your argument no. to, to the coercion case. No, I'm not. So you disagree, as Mr. Kent did, with the, that uh, manual that says um, you can pay someone else's tax in a situation of duress and then sue for a refund, but absent duress, if you're just a mere volunteer, uh, you have no claim. The, the, the facts in this case, obviously, were the duress situation, and we absolutely say that there's no possibility for the government's fears to come forward in that particular situation. But in the volunteer sense, and this Court doesn't necessarily have to go that far, but as a matter of tax policy, why not? Why can't a person who, in error, paid tax, voluntarily even, well, why... Well, it seems to me we do have to go that far under your interpretation of the statute. Now, let me ask you one question before you get back to the Internal Revenue Code section. Uh, what about a mechanics lien? Suppose that a person closes an escrow knowing that there's a mechanics lien on the house. Uh, so that the mechanics lien passes to the, to the subsequent purchase. Can the purchaser challenge the mechanics lien on the ground that the work was never performed? I would assume so under the facts of that hypothetical, that if the work was never performed, it would be a defense to a mechanics lien, although I'm not an expert in mechanics lien law, so I might be misspeaking. Your Honors, I would like, once again, to just take a moment to go into what the government's concerns are and to perhaps alleviate some of their fears. In the situation that the government cites in their brief, the possibility for tax evasion, 
you would have to have, in essence, two parties. On one hand, a taxpayer, the person that owes the tax under their definition, and a friend, let's call him a co-conspirator. That co-conspirator says to his taxpayer friend, I'm going to pay your taxes. We're going to wait for the statute of limitations to expire. I'm going to help you evade taxes, and then I'm going to file a refund suit. That situation is somewhat preposterous in real life. You're talking about a situation where a person's going to come out of pocket using the numbers, in this case, $40,000, on the hopes that they might get their money back if they file a refund claim just to help their friend evade taxes because the statute of limitations is expiring. That's fanciful, but they're, they're worried, I think, about another thing. What statute of limitations would govern? You'd have to either, you'd have to either call your client a taxpayer, which would then give the words taxpayer different meanings in different sections of the code, which is worrying them. Or alternatively, you'd have to say she's not a taxpayer, and then it would seem that no statute of limitations would govern. We'd have to create one. So that's one of the problems they've raised. So how do you respond to that one? My response is online with the courts that have ruled on this, and I cited a few in my brief, which were, were not authority to this court, but I cited them just so that you could see how other judges have gone through the same analysis, which is that the word taxpayer in 6511 is used in its generic sense, that it's used as the person who pays the taxes. It's not used as a term of art in that sense. If Congress had wanted to use it as a term of art, why wouldn't they have just put it in the cause of action section, 7422? Don't we also assume that Congress wants some sort of a statute of limitations? And, and there is none on, on that reading. How do we get the statute of limitations? Well, well I agree. Do, do we do it the lamp way? I, I agree, in, in essence, what, what uh, the Justice was just asking me, which is that it's construed in its generic sense in 6511, which makes 6511 the statute of limitations. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I misunderstood what you were saying. I see. Okay. If there are no further questions, Your Honor, I, I thank you for your time. Very well, Mr. Smith. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.